Jag är här nu på Jag såg ISL-kart för ISL-kart och gas och strad ISL. Jag vill ha jag såg några många ajar. Welcome to the 359th of the Cthulhu podcast, I'm Felbrig, and today we continue with South with Scott by Edward Evans, who was part of Scott's fabled fatal journey south. And then we continue with the reading of Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. So, let's head to that white continent. Chapter 9. Preliminary Explorations So much for the winter life up to date. No great excitement, nothing untoward, but a remarkable bonhomie obtaining in our little company, despite the tedium of so many days of winter gloom. On June 27th, Dr. Wilson, with Bowers and Cherry Garrard, started on a remarkable journey to Cape Crozier, nearly 70 miles distant from Cape Evans, via Hut Point and the Barrier. The object of these intrepid salts was to observe the incubation of the Emperor Penguins at their rookery which was known to exist near the junction point of the barrier edge with the rocky cliff south of Cape Crozier. It must be borne in mind that this was the first Antarctic midwinter journey, and that the three men must of necessity face abnormally low temperatures and unheard of hardships whilst making the sledge journey over the ice barrier. We had gathered enough knowledge of the autumn sledge journeys and in the days of the Discovery Expedition to tell us this, so that it was not without considerable misgivings that Captain Scott permitted Wilson to carry the winter expedition to Cape Crozier into being. The scope of my little volume only permits me to tell this story in brief. No very detailed account has yet been published, although Cherry Garrard, the only survivor of the three, wrote the far too modest memoir of the journey which has been published in volume two of Scott's Last Expedition. Apart from the zoological knowledge Wilson hoped to gain from the Cape Crozier visit in midwinter, there was a wealth of other information to be collected concerning the barrier conditions, particularly the meteorological conditions. But above all, we knew that with such quick and reliable observers as Wilson and his companions, we must derive additional experience in the matter of sledging rations, for the party had agreed to make experiments in order to arrive at the standard ration to be adopted for the colder weather that we must face during the second half of the forthcoming polar journey. Wilson took two small nine-foot sledges, and after being photographed was helped out to Glacier Tongue by a small hurrah party. In the bad light he was handicapped from the very first, and it took the party two days to get on to the ice barrier. Their progress was dreadfully slow, which was not to be wondered at, for they were pulling loads of £250 per man. The surfaces were seldom anything they had hitherto faced, and the temperatures seldom above 60 degrees. Relay work had to be resorted to, and in consequence the party took 18 days to reach Cape Crozier. They met with good weather, that is calm weather to begin with, but the bad surfaces handicapped them severely. After rounding Cape McKay, they reached a windswept area and met with a series of blizzards. Their best light was moonlight, and they were denied this practically by overcast skies. Picture their hardships. Frozen bags to sleep in. Frozen finesco to put their feet in every time they struck camp. Fingertips always getting frostbitten and sometimes toes and heels. No comfort was to be derived within camp, for at the best they could hope 
was only to sit and shiver when preparing the food, and once the bags were unrolled to sleep in, more trouble came. It is on record that Cherry Garrard took as long as three quarters of an hour to break his way into his sleeping bag, and once inside it, he merely shook and froze. The party used a double tent for this journey, that is to say, a light lining fitted on the inner side of the five bamboo tent poles, so that when the ordinary windproof tent cloth was spread over the poles, an air space was provided. There was, I may say, a sharp difference of opinion as to the value of this tent. Wilson's party swore by it, and Scott was always loud in its praise. The sailors hated it and despised it. They always argued when consulted on the subject of the double tent that it collected snow and rime and added much to the weights we had to drag along. Perhaps they were right. And I remember one occasion when two members of the expedition dumped their inner lining after carrying it many hundreds of miles with the remark, Goodbye, you blighter. You've had a damn good ride. The scene inside the little green tent baffles description. The three men's breath and the steam from the cooker settles in no time on the sides of the tent in a thick white rime. The least movement shakes this down in a shower which brings clammy discomfort to all. The dimmest of light is given by the sledging lantern with its edible candle, for Messrs Price and Co. had made our candles eatable but not poisonous. Everything is frozen stiff, fur boots, bags, fur mittens, and break if roughly handled, for they are as hard as boards. The cold has carved deep ruts in the faces of the little company who, despite their sufferings and discomforts, smile and keep cheerful without apparent effort. This cheerfulness and the frequent smell of the cooking pemmican are the two redeeming features of a dreadful existence, but the discomforts are only a foretaste of what is to come. One night the temperature fell to 77 degrees below zero, that is 109 degrees of frost. There is practically no record of such low temperatures, although Captain Scott found that Roald Amundsen in one of his northern journeys encountered something nearly as bad. One cannot wonder that Wilson's party scarcely slept at all, but their outward experiences were nothing to what they put up with at Cape Crozier, which was reached on July the 15th. To get onto the slopes of Mount Terror near Crozier, the party climbed over a great pressure ridge and up a steep slope to a position between the end of a moraine terrace and the conspicuous hillock known as the Knoll. In the gap here, the last camp was made in a windswept snow hollow. A stone hut was constructed behind a land ridge above this hollow. The party, using a quantity of loose rocks and hard snow to build with, and Cherry Grud did most of the building, while the others provided the material, for, in his methodical way, Cherry had built a model hut before leaving Cape Evans. The hut was 800 feet above sea level, roofed with canvas with one of the sledges as a rafter to support the canvas roof. On the 19th of July, the party descended by the snow slopes to the Emperor Penguin Rookery. They had great trouble in making this descent, on account of crevasses in the ice slopes which overhung the level way under the rock cliffs. As a matter of fact, the attempt on the 19th proved abortive, although the little band got close to the rookery. They reached it successfully on the 20th, when the light was almost failing and were mortified to find only about 100 emperor penguins in place of the two or three thousand birds which the rookery had been found to contain in the discovery days. Possibly the early date accounted for the absence of emperors. However, half a dozen eggs were collected, and three of these found their way home to England. 
Wilson picked up rounded pieces of ice at the rookery, which the stupid emperors had been cherishing, fondly imagining they were eggs. Evidently, the maternal instincts of the emperor penguin is very strong. The party killed and skinned three birds, and then returned to the shelter of the stone hut, but not without difficulty. It is worthy of note that the three birds killed by the party were very thickly blubbered, and their oil obtained from them burned well. The Ross Sea was found to be frozen over as far as the horizon. When the party got back to their shelter, two eggs had burst and saturated Cherry Garrard's mitts. This optimistic young man found good even in this, for he said that on the way home to Cape Evans his mitts thawed out far more easily than Bowers did, and attributed this little triumph to the grease in the broken egg. That night they slept for the first time in the stone hut. Perhaps it was fortunate that they did so, for it was blowing hard and the wind developed into a terrific storm. One of the hurricane gusts of wind swept the roof of the hut away, and for two days the unfortunate party lay in their bags half smothered by fine drifting snow. The second day was Wilson's birthday. He told me afterwards that had the gale not abated when it did, all three men must have perished. They'd not dared to stir out of the meagre shelter afforded by their sleeping bags. Wilson prayed hard that they might be spared. His prayer was answered, it is true. But before another year had passed, two of this courageous little band lost their lives in their eager thirst for scientific knowledge. When the three men crept out of their bags into the dull winter gloom, they groped about and searched for their tent, which had blown away from its pitch near the stone hut. By an extraordinary piece of good fortune, it was recovered, scarcely damaged, a quarter of a mile away. Cherry Garrard describes the roar of the wind as it whistled in their shelter to have been like the rush of an express train through a tunnel. Wilson, Bowers and Cherry Garrard started home after this, but were caught by another blizzard which imprisoned them in their tent for another 48 hours. They were now running short of oil for warming and cooking purposes, but the little party won through after a very rough march full of horrible hardships and discomforts and reached Cape Evans on the 1st of August, when they had faced the dreadful winter weather conditions on the cruel ice barrier for five weeks. What forlorn objects they did look. It was pathetic to see them as they staggered into the hut. Wilson, when he could give a collected account of what he and his party had faced, was loud in the praise of Birdie and Cherry. The party were examined by Atkinson, who gave some direction and advice concerning their immediate diet. They seemed to want bread and butter and jam most of all, and the little loaves provided by Clissold disappeared with extraordinary speed. They were suffering from want of sleep, but were all right in a few days. One of the remarkable features of this journey was the increase of weights due to ice collecting in their sleeping bags and gear and equipment. Their three bags, which weighed 47 pounds on leaving Cape Evans, had increased their weight to 118 at the conclusion of the trip. Other weights increased in the same proportion, and the sledge had dragged very heavily in consequence. The three men, when they arrived, were almost encased in ice, and I well remember undressing poor Wilson in the cubicle which he and I shared. His clothes had almost to be cut off of him. From this journey, as stated, we evolved the final sledging ration for the summit. It was to consist of 16 ounces of biscuit, 12 ounces of pemmican, 3 ounces of sugar, 2 ounces of butter, 0.7 ounces of tea, 0.6 ounces of cocoa, a daily total 
of 34.3 ounces. It may seem little enough for a hungry sledger, but no one could possibly eat that amount in a temperate climate. It was a fine filling ration even for the Antarctic. The pemmican consisted of the finest beef extract, with 60% pure fat, and it cooked up into a thick, tasty soup. It was specially made for us by Messrs. Bovis of Copenhagen. No casualties occurred during the winter, but Dr. Atkinson sustained a severely frostbitten hand on July the 4th, when we had one of our winter blizzards. Certain thermometers had been placed in positions on the sea ice, and up on the ramp by Simpson, and these we were in the habit of visiting during the course of our exercise. The thermometer reading was done by volunteers who signified their intention to Simpson in order to avoid duplication of observation. On blizzard days we left them alone, but Atkinson, seeing that the wind had modified in the afternoon, zealously started out over the ice and was absent from dinner. Search parties were sent out in various directions, each taking a sledge with sleeping bags, brandy, flask, thermos full of cocoa and first aid equipment. Flares were lit and kept going on Windvale Hill, Simpson's meteorological station overlooking the hut here. Search was made in all directions by us, and difficulty was experienced due to the light snowfall. Atkinson fetched up at Tent Island, which he'd walked round for hours, and in trying to make the cape again became hopelessly lost, and losing one of his mitts for a time, fell into a tide crack, and did not get home until upon midnight. Search parties came in one by one and were glad to hear the good news of Atkinson's return. My own party, working to the south of Cape Evans, did not notice how time was passing, and we, Nelson, Ford, Hooper and myself, fetched up at 2am to be met by Captain Scott and comforted with cocoa. Atkinson's hand was dreadful to behold. He had blisters like great puffed-out slugs on the last three fingers of his right hand, while on the forefinger there were three more bulbous-looking blisters, one of them an inch in diameter. For days and days the hand had constantly to be bandaged, P.O. Evans doing nurse and doing it exceedingly well. Considering all things, we were fairly free of frostbite in the Scott expedition, and there is no doubt that Atkinson's accident served as an example to all of us to be canny. Although we had our proportion of blizzard days, I do not think our meteorological record showed any undue frequency of high wind and blizzards. But as Simpson in his meteorological discussion points out, we suffered far more in this respect than Amundsen, who camped on the ice barrier far from the land. It is a bitter pill to swallow, but in the light of events one is compelled to state that had we stuck to our original plan and made our landing 400 miles or so to the eastward of Ross Island, we should have escaped, in all probability, the greater part of the bad weather experienced by us. Comparison with Franheim, Amundsen's observation station, shows that we at Cape Evans had ten times as much high wind as the Norwegians experienced. Our wind velocities reached greater speeds than 60 miles an hour, whereas there does not appear to be any record of wind higher than 45 miles an hour at Amundsen's base at the Bay of Wales. Some of our anameter records were very interesting. In the month of July, when Wilson's party was absent, we recorded 258 hours of blizzards, that is, of southerly winds of more than 25 miles an hour speed. This was the record for the winter months, but while we were depot-laying and waiting for the sea to freeze over at Hut Point, no less than 404 hours of blizzard were recorded in one month 
arch. Think of it. Well over half the month was blizzard, with its consequent discomfort and danger. The blizzard, which nearly caused the loss of our Cape Crozier party, measured a wind force of 84 miles an hour. No wonder the canvas roof of the stone hut was swept away. Our minimum temperature at Hutt Meteorological Station was 50 degrees below zero in July 1911, and the maximum temperature during the winter occurred in June, when the thermometer stood as high as plus 19 degrees. Our ten ponies stood the winter very well, all things considered. One nearly died with cramp, but he pulled round in extraordinary fashion after keeping Oates and myself up all night nursing him. In spite of the names we assigned to the animals, largely on account of their being presented to us by certain schools, institutions and individuals, the ponies were called by names conferred on them by the sailors and those who led them out for exercise. The ten animals that now survived were James Pig, Christopher, Victor, Nobby, Jehu, Michael, Snatcher, Bones, Snippets, and a Mancurian animal called Chinaman, who behaved very badly in that he was always squealing, biting and kicking at the other ponies. A visitor to the stables, if he lent a hand to stir up the blubber which was usually cooking there, found himself generally welcome and certain to be entertained. Oates and Mears, his constant companions, had both served through the South African War and had many delightful stories to tell of their experiences in this campaign. Their anecdotes are not all printable, but no matter. Of Oates, it is correct to say that he was more popular with the seamen than any other officer. He understood these men perfectly and could get any amount of work out of them. This was a great advantage, because he had only his Russian groom permanently to assist him, and he generally used volunteer labour after working hours to carry out his operations. In the two lectures he gave us on the care and management of horses, to which reference has been made, Oates showed how much time and thought he devoted to his charges, and to the forthcoming pony sledge work over the great ice barrier. During the latter half of the winter, Oates and I saw a good deal of one another as we daily exercised our ponies on the sea ice when Wilson's party was away and afterwards also until the weather was light enough for me to continue surveying. Oates led out two ponies generally, Christopher the Troublesome and Jehu the Indolent, while the care of the rogue pony, Chinaman, devolved on myself. When the ponies went well, which was usually the case, when they did not suffer from weather, we used to have long yarns about our respective services and mutual friends. Oates would often discuss the forthcoming southern journey, and his ambition was to reach the top of the Beardmore Glacier. He did not expect to be selected for the southern party, which was planned to contain four men only. Two of these must have special knowledge of navigation, to check one another's observations. The third would be a doctor, and it was expected that a seaman would be chosen for the fourth. So Oates was convinced that he had no chance never for a moment appreciating his own sterling qualities. By the spring, the ponies were all ready to start their serious training for the southern journey, and the proper leaders now took charge in daily exercise their animals in harness. The older sledges were used with dummy loads, varying in weight according to the conditions and strength of the pony. So well, in fact, and so carefully did Oates tend his charges, that by the time they were required for the southern journey, only Jehu caused him any anxiety. Even so, this beast managed to haul a reasonable load for a distance of nearly 280 miles. As to the dogs, the list was as follows. Poodle, killed during a gale outward in the ship. Manike Rabchik, little grouse, 
died from fall into a crevasse. Vashka died suddenly, cause unknown. Sarah Uki, grey ears, died after camp and paralysis of hind legs. Seri, likewise, and Deke, likewise. Starig, old man, sent back with the first supporting party. Deke, the wild one. Brodadia, the robber. Bile Glass, white eye. Wolk, which is wolf. Manike Nuglis, little leader. Kesoi, one eye. Julik, scamp. Trezor, treasure. Vida, Kumungai, Balai Nugis, which is white leader, Hohol, little Russian, Chrysavisa, beauty, Lapuki, Lapiers, Pechika, little bird, Sigain, gypsy, Giliak, Indian, Osman, Seri, which was grey, Sukhoi, meaning lean, Borup, Rabchik, meaning grouse, Ostranos, long nose, Makaka, monkey, Chornstarik, Black Old Man, and Peary. Note, Borup and Peary were from the American North Polar Expedition puppies. Borup was used in Dimitri's dog team, which got right on to the Beardmore Glacier. But Peary was never any use except for the other dogs to sharpen their teeth on. He was a regular pariah. Apart from the sledge dogs, we had a bitch called Lassie for breeding purposes, but she was a rotten dog and killed her puppies so we might as well have left her in New Zealand where we got her. The dogs in general came through the winter very well, and during blizzards they merely coiled themselves up into round balls of fur and let the snow drift over them. Mears and Dimitri kept a very watchful eye over the dog teams and protected them against the prevailing winds with substantial snow shelters, always taking the weaker or sick animals into the annex where Birdie kept his stores or else into the small dog hospital which was made by Dimitri and perfected by Mears. The sun returned to us on the 22nd of August. We were denied a sight of it owing to bad weather. From the 22nd and 23rd of August we had a blizzard with very heavy snowfall, and the drift was so great that when it became necessary to leave the hut for any purpose, the densely packed flakes almost stifled us. We hoped to see the sun at noon on the 23rd, when it was denied to us on the previous day, but no such luck. The sun's return was heralded by one of our worst blizzards, which continued with very occasional lulls until August the 26th, when we actually saw the sun, or just a bit of it. I saw the upper limb from out on the sea ice, and Sunny Jim at the same time got a sight of it from his observatory hill. How glad we were. We drank champagne to honour the sun. People made poetry concerning it, some of which, Bertie Bower's lines, found their way eventually into the South Polar Times. The animals went half dotty over it, frisking, kicking, and breaking away even from their leaders. They seemed to understand so well, these little ponies, that the worst part of the winter was gone. Poor ponies. Long before the sun again disappeared below the northern horizon, the ponies were no more. There is not so very much in the statement that the sun had now returned. But the fact, of little enough significance to those without the Antarctic Circle, left something in our minds, an impression never to be effaced. The snowed-up hut, surrounded by great expanse of white. The sniffing at one's knees and the wagging of tails as one approached to pat their heads. The twitching of the pony's ears and nostrils. And the rather impish attitude the fitter animals adopted. The occasional kick-out probably meant quite playfully, and above all the grins on the faces of the Russian grooms. Yes, we were all smiling when the sun came back, 
Even the horizon smiled kindly at us from the north. The Barn Glacier's snout lost its inexorable hard grey look and took on softer hues, and Erebus's slopes were now bathed in every shade of orange, pink and purple. To begin with, we had very little of this lovely colouring, but soon the gladdening tints stretched out over the morning and afternoon. We were never idle in the hut, and the sun's return seemed to make fingers lighter as well as hearts. And now it's dreaming time. Carter could now distinguish moving figures on the noisome wharfs ahead, and the better he saw them, the worse he began to fear and detest them. For they were not men at all, or even approximately men, but great, greyish-white, slippery things, which could expand and contract at will, and whose principal shape, though it often changed, was that of a sort of toad without any eyes, but with a curious vibrating mass of short pink tentacles on the end of its blunt, vague snout. These objects were waddling busily about the wharves, moving bales and crates and boxes with preternatural strength, and now and then hopping on or off some anchored galley with long oars in their forepaws. And now and then one would appear driving a herd of clumping slaves, which indeed were approximate human beings with wide mouths like those merchants who traded in Dilath Lean. Only these herds, being without turbans or shoes or clothing, did not seem so very human after all. Some of the slaves, the fatter ones whom a sort of overseer would pinch experimentally, were unloaded from ships and nailed in crates, which workers pushed into the low warehouses or loaded on great lumbering vans. Once a van was hitched and driven off, and the fabulous thing which drew it was such that Carter gasped, even after having seen the other monstrosities of this hateful place. Now and then a small herd of slaves, dressed and turbaned like the dark merchants, would be driven aboard a galley, followed by a great crew of the slippery toad things as officers, navigators, and rowers. And Carter saw that the almost human creatures were reserved for the more ignominious kinds of servitude, which required no strength such as steering and cooking, fetching and carrying, and bargaining with men on the earth or other planets where they traded. These creatures must have been convenient on earth, for they were truly not unlike men when dressed and carefully shod and turbaned, and could haggle in the shops of men without embarrassment or curious explanations. But most of them, unless lean or ill-favoured, were unclothed, and packed in crates and drawn off in lumbering lorries by fabulous things. Occasionally other beings were unloaded or crated, and very like these semi-humans, some not so similar, and some not similar at all. And he wondered if any of the poor stout black men of Parg were left to be unloaded and crated and shipped inland by these obnoxious drays. When the galley landed at a greasy-looking quay of spongy rock, a nightmare horde of toad things wiggled out of the hatches, and two of them seized Carter and dragged him ashore. The smell and aspect of that city are beyond telling, and Carter held only scattered images of the tiled streets and the black doorways, and endless precipices of grey vertical walls without windows. At length he was dragged within a low doorway, and made to climb infinite steps in pitch blackness. It was, apparently, all one to the toad things whether it were light or dark. 
The odour of the place was intolerable, and when Carter was locked into a chamber and left alone, he scarcely had the strength to crawl around and ascertain its form and dimensions. It was circular, and about twenty feet across. From then on, time ceased to exist. At intervals, food was pushed in, but Carter would not touch it. What his fate would be, he did not know. But he felt that he was held for the coming of that frightful soul and messenger of infinity's other gods, the crawling chaos, Nyarlathotep. Finally, after an unguessed span of hours or days, the great stone door swung wide again, and Carter was shoved down the stairs and out into the red-litten streets of that fearsome city. It was the night of the moon, and all through the town were stationed slaves bearing torches, In a detestable square, a sort of procession was formed. Ten of the toad things and twenty-four almost human torch-bearers, eleven on either side and one before each and one behind. Carter was placed in the middle of this line, five toad things ahead and five behind, and one almost human torch-bearer on either side of him. Certain of the toad things produced disgustingly carven flutes of ivory and made loathsome sounds. To that hellish piping, the column advanced out of the tiled streets and into the nighted plains of obscene fungi, soon commencing to climb one of the lower and more gradual hills that lay behind the city. That on some frightful slope or blasphemous plateau the crawling chaos waited, Carter could not doubt, and he wished that the suspense might soon be over. The whining of those impious flutes was shocking and he would have given worlds for some even half-normal sound. But these toad things had no voices, and the slaves did not talk. Then, through that star-speckled darkness, there came a normal sound. It rolled up from the higher hills, and from all the jagged peaks around it was caught up and echoed in a swelling pandemonic chorus. It was the midnight yell of the cat and Carter knew at last that the old village folk were right when they made low guesses about the cryptical realms which are known only to cats, and to which the elders amongst cats repair by stealth nocturnally, springing from high housetops. Verily, it is to the moon's dark side that they go to leap and gamble on the hills and converse with ancient shadows, and here, amidst that column of fetid things, Carter heard their homely, friendly cry and thought of the steep roofs and warm hearths and little lighted windows of home. Now much of the speech of cats was known to Randolph Carter, and in this far terrible place he uttered the cry that was suitable. But that he need not have done, for even as his lips opened he heard the chorus wax and draw nearer, and saw swift shadows against the stars as small graceful shapes leapt from hill to hill in gathering legions. The call of the clan had been given, and before the foul procession had time to even be frightened, a cloud of smothering fur and a phalanx of murderous claws were tidily and tempestuously upon it. The flutes stopped, and there were shrieks in the night. Dying almost humans screamed, the cats spit and yowled and roared, and the toad things never made a sound as their stinking green ichor oozed fatally upon that porous earth where the obscene fungi lie. It was a stupendous sight while the torches lasted, and Carter had never before seen so many cats. Black, 
Grey and white, yellow, tiger and mixed, common, Persian, Marex, Tibetan, Angoran and Egyptian. All were there in the fury of battle, and there hovered over them some trace of that profound and inviolate sanctity which made their goddess great in the temples of Bubastis. They would leap seven strong at the throat of an almost human, or the pink tentacled snout of a toad thing, and drag it down savagely to the fungerous plain, where myriads of their fellows would surge over it and into it with frenzied claws and teeth of a divine battle fury. Carter had seized a torch from a stricken slave, but it was soon overborne by the surging waves of his loyal defenders. Then he lay in that utter blackness, hearing the clangour of the war and the shouts of the victors, and feeling the soft paws of his friends as they rushed to and fro over him in the fray. At last, awe and exhaustion closed his eyes, and when he opened them again, it was upon a strange scene. The great shining disk of the earth, thirteen times greater than that of the moon as we see it, had risen with floods of weird light over the lunar landscape, and across all those leagues of wild plateau and ragged crest there squatted one endless sea of cats in an orderly array. Circle on circle they reached, and two or three leaders out of the ranks were licking his face and purring to him consolingly. Of the dead slaves and toad things there were not many signs, but Carter thought he saw one bone a little way off in the open space between him and the warriors. Carter now spoke with the leaders in the soft language of cats, and learned that his ancient friendship with the species was well known and often spoken of in the places where cats congregate. He had not been unmarked in Ulthar when he passed through and the sleek old cats had remembered how he patted them after he'd attended to the hungry zoogs who looked evilly at a small black kitten. And they recalled, too, how he had welcomed the very little kitten who came to see him at the inn, and how he'd given it a saucer of rich cream in the morning before he left. The grandfather of that very little kitten was the leader of the army now assembled, for he had seen the evil procession from a far hill, and recognised the prisoner as a sworn friend of his kind on earth and in the land of dream. A yowl now came from the farther peak, and the old leader paused abruptly in his conversation. It was one of the army's outposts, stationed on the highest of the mountains to watch the one foe which earth's cats fear, the very large and peculiar cats from Saturn, who had for some reason not been oblivious of the charm of our moon's dark side. They are leaguered by treaty and with evil toad things, and are notoriously hostile to our earthly cats, so that at this juncture a meeting would have been a somewhat grave matter. After a brief consultation of generals, the cats rose and assumed a closer formation, crowding protectingly around Carter and preparing to take the great leap through space back to the housetops of our earth and its dreamland. The old field marshal advised Carter to let himself be borne along smoothly and passively in the massed ranks of furry leapers, and told him how to spring when the rest sprang, and land gracefully when the rest landed. He also offered to deposit him in any spot he desired, and Carter decided on the city of Dilathleen, whence the black galley had set out, for he wished to sail thence for Oriab and the craven crest Granek, and also to warn the people of the city to have no more traffic with black galleys 
if indeed that traffic could be tactfully and judiciously broken off. Then, upon a signal, the cats all leapt gracefully with their friend packed securely in their midst, while in a black cave on an unhallowed summit of the moon mountains still vainly waited the crawling chaos, Nyarlathotep. The leap of the cats through space was very swift, and being surrounded by his companions, Carter did not see this time the great black shapelessness that lurk and caper and flounder in the abyss. Before he fully realised what had happened, he was back in his familiar room at the inn at Dilath Lean, and the stealthy friendly cats were pouring out of the window in streams. The old leader from Ulthar was the last to leave, and as Carter shook his paw, he said he would be able to get home by cockcrow. When dawn came, Carter went downstairs and learned that a week had elapsed since his capture and leaving. There was still nearly a fortnight to wait for this ship bound to Oriap, and during that time he said what he could against the black galleys and their infamous ways. Most of the townsfolk believed him, yet so fond were the jewellers of great rubies that none would wholly promise to cease trafficking with the wide-mouthed merchants. If aught of evil ever befalls Dilath Lean through such traffic, it will not be his fault. In about a week, the desiderate ship put in by the Black Whale and Tall Lighthouse, and Carter was glad to see that she was a bark of wholesome men, with painted sides and yellow lanteen sails, and a grey captain in silken robes. Her cargo was the fragrant resin of Oriab's inner groves, and the delicate pottery baked by the artists of Bahama, and the strange little figures carved from Grand Neck's ancient lava. For this, they were paid in the wool of Ulthar and the iridescent textiles of Hathag, and the ivory that the black men carve across the river in Park. Carter made arrangements with the captain to go to Bahana, and was told that the voyage would take ten days. And during his week of waiting, he talked much with that captain of Granek, and was told that very few had seen the carven face thereon, but that most travellers are content to learn its legends from old people, and from lather gatherers and image makers in Bahana, and afterward say in their far homes that they have indeed beheld it. The captain was not even sure that any person now living had beheld that carven face, for the wrong side of Granek is very difficult and barren and sinister, and there are rumours of caves near the peak wherein dwell the night gaunts. But the captain did not wish to say just what a night gaunt might be like since such cattle are known to haunt most persistently the dreams of those who think too often of them. Then Carter asked that captain about unknown Kadath in the cold waste, and the marvellous sunset city. But of these the good man could truly tell nothing. Carter sailed out of Dilath Lean one early morning when the tide turned, and saw the first rays of sunrise on the thin angular towers of that dismal basalt town, and for two days they sailed eastward in sight of green coasts, and saw often the pleasant fishing towns that climbed up steeply with their red roofs and chimney pots from the old dreaming wharves and beaches where nets lay drying. But on the third day they turned sharply south, where the roll of water was stronger, and soon passed from sight of any land. On the fifth day the sailors were nervous, but the captain apologised for their fears saying that the ship was about to pass over the weedy walls and broken columns of a sunken city too old for memory, 
and that when the water was clear one could see so many moving shadows in that deep place that simple folk disliked it. He admitted, moreover, that many ships had been lost in that part of the sea, having been hailed when quite close to it, but never seen again. That night the moon was very bright, and one could see a great way down into the water. There was so little wind that the ship could not move much, and the ocean was very calm. Looking over the rail, Carter saw many fathoms deep the dome of the great temple, and in front of it an avenue of unnatural sphinxes leading to what was once a public square. Dolphins sported merrily in and out of the ruins, and porpoises reveled clumsily here and there, sometimes coming to the surface and leaping clear out of the sea. As the ship drifted on a little, the floor of the ocean rose in hills, and one could clearly mark the lines of ancient climbing streets and the washed-down walls of myriad little houses. Then the suburbs appeared, and finally a great lone building on a hill, of simpler architecture than the other structures, and in a much better repair. It was dark and low, and covered four sides of a square, with a tower at each corner, a paved court in the centre, and small curious round windows all over it. Probably it was of basalt, though weeds draped the greater part, and such was its lonely and impressive place on that far hill that it may have been a temple or a monastery. Some phosphorescent fish inside it gave the small round windows an aspect of shining, and Carter did not blame the sailors much for their fears. Then, by the watery moonlight, he noticed an odd high monolith in the middle of that central court, and saw that something was tied to it. And when, after getting a telescope from the captain's cabin, he saw that the bound thing was a sailor in a silk robes of Oriab, head downward, and without any eyes. He was glad that a rising breeze soon took the ship ahead to more healthy parts of the sea. The next day they spoke with a ship with violet sails bound for Tsar, in the land of the forgotten dreams, with bulbs of strange-coloured lilies for cargo. And on the evening of the eleventh day they came in sight of the Isle of Oriab, with Gran Eck rising jagged and snow-crowned in the distance. Oriab is a very great isle, and its port of Bahama is a mighty city. The wharves of Bahama are a porphyry, and the city rises in great stone terraces behind them, having streets of steps that are frequently arched over by buildings and by bridges between buildings. There is a great canal which goes under the whole city in a tunnel with granite gates and leads to the inland lake of Yath, on whose further shore are the vast clay-brick ruins of a primal city whose name is not remembered. As the ship drew into the harbour at evening, the twin beacons Thon and Thal gleamed a welcome, and in all the million windows of Bahama's terraces mellow lights peeped out quietly and gradually as the stars peep out overhead in the dusk, till that steep and climbing seaport became a glittering constellation hung between the stars of heaven and the reflections of those stars in the still harbour. The captain, after landing, made Carter a guest in his own small house on the shores of Yath, where the rear of the town slopes down to it, and his wife and servants brought strange toothsome foods for the traveller's delight. And in the days after that, Carter asked for rumours and legends of Gran Eck in all the taverns and public places where lava-gatherers and image-makers meet 
but could find no one who had been up the higher slopes or seen the carven face. Granek was a hard mountain, with only an accursed valley behind it. And besides, one could never depend on the certainty that night gaunts are altogether fabulous. And that's all for today. Except to remind you of my Patreon account where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a naval history of the War of 1812, also Space Viking by H. Beam Piper, and the first volume of The Pentagon Papers, which reveals the dark underbelly of the US's decision-making on the war in Vietnam. And as a bit of a side job, I'm also narrating the full rules to the role-playing game called Basic Fantasy Role-Playing Game. If any of that interests you, please go to patreon.com and search there for Felbrick. That's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Until next time. <laughs>